This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Um, Cam Walker's back with us today. He's uh, been joining us monthly for the past year, keeping us up to date with environmental policy, climate policy and the like. And actually, he's been speaking with us for about six or seven years on the grapevine. And as always, Cam, there's lots to catch up on. Um, thanks for being there again. I, I wonder if we should start with uh, Adani Mine and the Queensland election. How do you think it figured? Good morning. Oh, it was clearly huge. Um, I mean, what an election uh, was going to be the one where one nation broke through and was going to have balance of power and, you know, it didn't quite go according to plan um, with the ALP looking likely to come back uh, into power in its own right. But yes, there's no doubt that Adani played a really big role in the campaign. That was borne out in the uh, exit polling that was done by GetUp as people left uh, you know, the, the voting booths they were asked um, about Adani, but certainly it played out and very strongly in the southeast of the state. Uh, Adani was a really key issue for a lot of voters. And why do you think people were kind of broadly um, voting along the lines of being against Adani? Do you think it was out of environmental concerns or, or um, kind of economic concerns? Why do you think that that kind of came out in the election? I think it was a whole range of things. There's been a fantastic and very long-running campaign about this, of course. I think many people are aware of the climate change impacts of the mine if it is built, but it will also impact on the Great Barrier Reef, and there are tens of thousands of people currently employed in ecotourism and and nature-based tourism on the reef, and I think people are increasingly worried about climate change in general, but also shipping movements through the reef and the impact on the economy there. So I think it was a mix of people looking to the future, being concerned, about climate change, not being really happy with us putting perhaps a a billion dollars of taxpayer money uh, into the project, plus also what would be the impacts on the economy. So I think that's why it played out so strongly. Their ALP actually shifted their position during the election campaign and became and basically said we would veto the loan of the billion dollars to the company and i think that indicates the depth of the concern that it wasn't just the you know the inner city kind of progressive seats it was playing out more broadly in the alp heartland as well and so as you said cam this was vetoing the loan to the company to build the railway line to the adani mine what's next for this issue i mean in your view will it go ahead or does it look like it it, it won't now well, it's, it, it's really interesting. The company still says it will start work in September. Well, they, they claim that, you know, it's all underway. The problem is they don't have the funds and they certainly don't have the $1 billion loan. It's interesting that since the election, uh, one of the key supporters of the project, the uh, member of the senator from North Queensland, uh, Matthew Canavan, he thinks that the project is, quote, in doubt and won't go ahead now, um, which is pretty remarkable. Uh, so that's a, a profound shift in the terrain. As far as I know, Adani haven't said anything, but we know that they are still struggling to get the funding for the full project. So at this point, even though they say it's full steam ahead and it will continue, one of their key backers in the federal government is saying, I don't think it's going to proceed, and we know that they're struggling to get the money. So at this point, if you're a gambling person, it would probably be a safe bet to put it on it not pre- proceeding, or if it is to proceed, it would be a radically scaled-down proposal. And we did hear also just in that last week of the Queensland election that they were looking to Chinese companies putting in money for the required rail line. Um, But when I sort of read through the articles on that, that wasn't secure yet either. No, it's not. And 19 banks now, including a lot of the big banks here like Westpac, have now formally ruled out funding the project. So 19 banks, it's actually quite huge. We know that um, in India the company has a huge debt burden and we know that one of its big power stations that it has there, which would probably take about 60% of the, the, uh, the coal that would come from Adani, is actually not looking commercially viable at present. So um, it starts to look more and more like a house of cards you know there's this kind of perception that it's steaming ahead with the project but banks don't want to touch it the chinese money isn't looking very good their their power stations back home aren't looking very good in terms of commercial viability so yeah um these projects often move along on the sheer momentum they have but more and more i think it's hard to see it as going anywhere we can't afford to now ignore it because 
there is still a chance, for instance, that there's another federal agency called EFIC which could step in and provide that $1 billion, given that uh, Queensland Labor has said they would block the loan from the thing called the, the NAIF, the Northern Australia Infra Infrastructure Fund. Uh, so, yeah, it's not over yet, but it's looking ever more shaky uh, by the minute and certainly on the back of the, of the Saturday's election. And also last Friday, Cam, there was a COAG Energy Council meeting and after that, um, the Turnbull government claimed a win with the majority of the state energy ministers agreeing for more work and modelling to be done on the proposed national energy guarantee that was announced over the past few months. What was your reading of this? Was it a, a win for the Turnbull government? I think they were being very hopeful in their spin on that and I noted that the Victorian Energy Minister Lily D'Ambrosio came out and corrected the record because the states didn't say they were supporting this new idea. They were saying we're interested in finding out more information about it. So then the federal government put a positive spin that, oh, well, that shows the states support it. But clearly they don't at this point. Um, what we have is a thing called the National Energy Guarantee, which uh, is the new way that the government hopes we're going to resolve all the energy problems we have. They're scrapping the clean energy target, which had been put forward by Alan Finkel. They're saying they won't extend the current renewable energy target, the RET that we have in place beyond 2020. Uh, but it's very, it's been called thought bubble uh, policy. It's very light on for detail. I think the original briefing was six or eight pages long. Like it, it, it's shockingly threadbare in terms of the detail it's provided about how we would uh, get energy that is reliable and affordable and sustainable and so at the COAG meeting in Hobart last week the states basically said well let's at least get a bit more information and then we can make an informed decision. And so what are the key questions that are still there about the NEG as it's been known? Um, what don't we know about it? Oh, most most of it we don't know about. Um, retailers, so the energy retailers, the people you'd be paying your bills to will be required to have a certain percentage of what's called dispatchable electricity, so that would be batteries or water that's sitting in hydro dams or gas, but that will vary from state to state and hasn't been uh, set yet. Uh, what will happen with renewables, it's not certain. Uh, there'll be no subsidies in the system um, and we really don't know how kind of backing in gas which is very expensive in peak load times as we know when everyone turns their air con on you know on the really hot days and the spot price goes through the roof how relying on that is going to help drown, uh, drive down energy prices you know it's counterintuitive because it won't so it's like they've dropped the ball on this. There's ideology going on. So, you know, this is all about the civil war in the coalition between the climate deniers and the, you know, the moderates. Um, and they're attempting to come up with this policy that will deliver security and affordability and sustainability. So there is a, a percentage target for renewables in there, but it's even less ambitious than the RET was, and it's certainly nowhere near where we need to be. Um, so, yes, the detail is very threadbare, and it seems to be basically creating space for the potential for new coal-fired power stations, although the economics of that really don't stack up, and certainly locking in a lot more natural gas use in the interim. Yeah, we're talking with um, Cam Walker, familiar voice on the grapevine on Triple R. He's with Friends of the Earth and we've been speaking with him all year. And I was just thinking back over um, the stories that we've spoken to about this year, Cam, and energy has come up a lot. I mean, we've, we, we saw Hazelwood close. Um, we've had the fallout from the storms in South Australia that have really permeated through energy discussions this year. And I wonder, looking into next year, I think the, um, that big Tesla battery will be uh, in place. Uh, uh, do you think that the energy conversation is going to continue into 2018? Oh, yes. State election on the horizon this time next year. And um, at this point, the Victorian coalition is very very missing in action when it comes to climate change. Um, the ALP gets uh, climate change and is putting in place policies like the renewable energy target, but they're going to have to put forward their emissions reduction targets next year. There's the context between the uh, the Greens and the ALP and the inner seat, so it's, you know, it's going to be a pretty fascinating year and a very dynamic year in terms of energy politics because we know that it, on the back of the Northcote by-election, you know, people, a lot of people are really deeply concerned about climate change and 
energy. So it's going to be a really interesting year, I think, where energy and environmental issues are really going to be at the fore of the election conversation. And I know previously on this show, Cam, you've, um, I mean, relatively speaking, commended the Victorian government for things like the Victorian Renewable Energy Target and the ban on fracking and the like. Do you think that they will be continue to lead on, on those sorts of issues coming up to the election on the basis that it might be a vote winner? I'm sure they will because they have done very good things on energy. Um, the, uh, you know, the proof in the pudding will be the emissions reduction target because we actually need a plan to have a staged transition away from our current reliance on coal. So that's really what people will be looking at next year. And I think governments in general realise they need to deliver on climate and energy, but they also need to deliver on biodiversity. And the big ticket issue in the 2018 election is going to be the Great Forest National Park and where the ALP and where the coalition sit on that. So I think that they're quite mindful of the fact they can deliver good things on energy, but people are going to be saying, yes, but what about the trees? So it's essential both the Coalition and the ALP come around on the issue of protecting the Great Forest Park, which is that area to the east of Healesville where there's a proposal for a really large new national park. And, I mean, uh, some of the campaigning in Northcote was uh, criticised, I suppose, for bringing in forest issues into that, you know, inner urban seat. But do you think that uh, the voters of Northcote really did respond to concerns around biodiversity and forest cover? Oh, absolutely. We letterboxed every house in that electorate and we did polling and we, you know, had dozens and dozens and dozens of street events and people really want that park. Um, there was an attempt, I think, to kind of segment the demographics and appeal to self-interest and it actually didn't work. You know, people do care about those big issues like climate change, like equity, like forest protection. So I think, you know, the proof there is people do actually think big in elections. It's not just about them. It's also about the type of society we want. And that was borne out to my mind very strongly in what happened with the Northcote election. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing to speak with you. I hope, Cam, into 2018. Um, enjoy the summer period and um, we'll catch you back probably in February next year. Yes, thank you. It's been great uh, working with you this year. Have a great summer. And uh, Cam thanks, Walker, Cam. thanks, Cam. Uh, Cam Walker's with Friend of the Earth and uh, I got in my inbox recently. Um, they're kind of, I suppose, looking forward to the election, 12 months to the election in 2018. I think um, we're going to be seeing a lot more of those kinds of documents if you're interested in the kinds of issues that we're likely to be speaking about next year. We've just been reading a remarkable book over the weekend. It's called Pentridge Voices from the Other Side. It's a book that details the experiences of the people who were in Pentridge before it closed in 1997, either as prisoners or staff or visitors. And the text and photography is by Robert, uh, Robert, Rupert Mann and uh, tells the stories of 15 people who agreed to travel back inside the bluestone walls of Pentridge with him. Uh, they share personal stories with him about their time and um, I suppose looking back at the brutal history of Australia's most notorious maximum security prison before it was uh, transformed into a housing estate. Uh, thank you so much, Rupert, for coming in. Uh, what a remarkable book. And I suppose we should talk about the genesis of it, the concept of the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, why have you made it? Well, you know, like a lot of people who grew up in Melbourne, lived in Melbourne, Pentridge has been that place that always loomed out in Coburg. And um, it's been part of Melbourne's identity for 150 years. And I think a lot of people would have, like I did, drive past Pentridge with my father when I was quite young and ask him, what's that What's that place? And he said, that's prison where all the bad people go. And that in, instilled a fascination in me for Pentridge. Um, but it was really, for me, the trigger was seeing uh, how much development was going on there and how little was being recorded um, and so I, that really sparked me to do this book and, and try to make sure that uh, some of that heritage was was recorded um, and some of the stories were recorded before it was lost forever. And I understand it, it began as, as just a, a photographic project. Mm-hmm. You, you went in there and, and took some photos. At what point yeah. did you decide that you wanted to tell the stories of those who'd been part of its history? Well, I, I was actually... Um, yeah, I was listening to a Johnny Cash song, San Quentin. Uh, he went and sang in prisons. And one of the lines is, um, may your walls fall and may I live to tell. And I thought that would be a great concept. That would be a great book to do that. Um, so I went looking for people who could tell the story of Pentridge now that its walls were actually falling. Mm. And so I, I, I think I first got in contact with Peter Norden, 
who's in the book, who was the Jesuit chaplain of Pentridge, and Peter introduced me to a uh, former governor. Um, and then I slowly got in touch with people, and it was a, a kind of rambling story over four years, uh, meeting these people, finding these people, probably about um, 35, 40 people altogether I met. Uh, most of them didn't want to be involved in the book and then got to this this uh, this group. So, yeah, um, it was really the, the realisation that the, the real significance of Pentridge are the stories, the amazing stories, horrific stories, but amazingly positive and hopeful stories uh, that I began to hear. Um, and it was difficult to stop, actually. You know, I had to find a point where I sort of said, OK, that's enough. Um, there were many more people I would have liked mm. to have included. Um, but I was leaving Australia and had to go, so I, I really wanted to get the book done. Mm. And Pentridge, of course, is in private hands now, and mm. I love that you kind yeah. of had to essentially do a reverse jailbreak. You had to yeah. break in there, really, to, to take photos and, and, and get people photographed inside or, or talk to construction workers or people there mm. to allow you in. It was quite difficult to get inside those walls. It was difficult, uh, no breaking involved, uh, but we we did we did go in without developers' permission. Uh, not the same developers who own it at the moment. And I think we were lucky. It was the middle of the financial crisis, two thousand and eight, when two thousand and nine, when most of the photos were taken, and it seems like the developers just couldn't care less about the place. That developer actually went bankrupt eventually, so it was kind of open. Uh, you could wander around quite easily. Uh, people did let us in. Uh, but often uh, doors and gates were left open. Uh, it was difficult to see where the public and the private parts ended. Mm. But it was a, it was an interesting idea, and a lot of the people in the book found it quite amusing, the idea of sort of sneaking back into this prison <laughs> that they'd have given anything to get out of <laughs> years before. Mm. And before we go to some of these stories, I mean, Pentridge, and, and you outline in the introduction, is the location in Australia of that sort of last flogging the uh mm. the last woman um, Nelly, yep. was ex- yeah Lee was executed there and yep. um i suppose famously ronald ryan in 1967 yep. was hanged in pentridge and i mean i know people that were protesting outside those mm. gates mm. when that happened uh you found someone who was a witness inside that's right brian morley he he opens the book actually the first chapter in the book amazing man when i first met him we uh we did a little interview, had a little chat um, in a cafe. And, uh, you know, he sort of came across as a bit of a tough old school journalist. And he, he he started talking about the day and talking about when he first saw the rope hanging over the... walked into the division and saw this rope hanging over the balustrade of the gallows. And he just broke down in front of me in just sobs of um, deep... Pain and it, and it was so clear then that this event had had an enormous impact on him. He sort of went in as a young a young man, not really knowing what he was going to see, and before he knew it, he I think he all he he almost felt complicit in that hanging. You know, Ryan was hanged a few feet away from him, and so he refused to go back into the prison originally. And it was I think the the realization that um, you know D division was being used, which it still is being used for. Uh, Mexican theme parties, fashion parades, uh, you know, all that sort of stuff. And he, he thought that was quite disrespectful to that history. And he really became determined to go back in and be part of the book. And going back in with him that day was an extremely powerful experience, watching him stand where he stood all those years before and kind of face a ghost that had haunted him for many, many years. And it, it kind of lifted, I think, for him that day, yeah, mm, yeah. In, in, a, in a way. That's amazing. He, he speaks of kind of leaving and being quite disoriented, but then having to, to file a story for 3AW, I think, going on BBC, was yep. it, and, and, yep. and delivering kind of a report on it, and then being on hour, on radio for an hour, hour and a half afterwards, taking yep. callers' questions. And, yep. and he decided then and there that he'd campaign against the death penalty. Which he did, yep, yep. He um, he did. He was in, involved. I think continues to be involved with Amnesty International on that issue. Uh, yeah, he, he, enormously powerful. And it, and he was only in Pentridge for you know maybe two hours, two or three hours. And that's the power of this place. You know, he was in there for just a moment. Um, so for people who were involved in that hanging, who worked there, people who knew Ryan personally, um, people who worked in that place for decades, 
you know, it, it's it's impacted so many people's lives. This um, this place deeply and, and that that period 1967 around then is when we start getting the policies around prisoner rights and so forth mm, but pentridge yep. the conditions in pentridge even when it closed in 1997 were brutal and appalling weren't mm. they they were yeah and it's interesting peter norton for jesuit social services they opened up the prison for tours you know a few weeks i think maybe a couple of months after it had closed and in order to make it meet the most basic health and safety standards they had to spend about a hundred thousand um, dollars to just allow people to to go in there but people had been living there working there you know in the in the years before that so yeah it was part of the reason pentridge was closed it it was going to be so expensive to upgrade it uh, i think it just became cheaper to build a new prison um, so it slipped into into history yeah. If you just tuned in, we're speaking with Rupert Mann all about his uh, amazing book, Pentridge Voices from the Other Side, which is kind of part photo essay, um, part journal, really, of, of people's um, experiences inside Pentridge, whether as prisoners or, or workers or journalists. And it's interesting speaking about Brian Morley as one of the most affecting stories I, I read, and he wasn't even an inmate of Pentridge. But it's it's amazing that each of these people you've included in the book have a completely unique response to being inside those walls. And, and someone like Jack Charles, whose story's been very well documented, of course, spent um, a good chunk of his adult life in and out of Pentridge, but he seems almost um, nonplussed by being back within those walls and said that for him it wasn't a pleasant experience, but in some cases was a better alternative to being out on the street. Mm. Yeah, and Jack's, uh, Jack's an amazing, amazing man, and you know his story's changed so dramatically in the last few years, um, which is wonderful to see. And um, I think it's sort of uh, indicative of the experience of many Indigenous Australians, shamefully, that, um, you know, somewhere like Pentridge for Jack uh, was just another institution, he says, you know, mm. for him when he was a young man. And um, so it didn't, it didn't impact him in, the, in that way, um, as it might have impacted someone who was in there for the first time. And going back in with Jack was, was interesting. Yeah, he, he was quite, he was quiet. Um, and, you know, he, uh, he's such a positive man. He's always so, uh, you know, ready to laugh and, and, um, easygoing, but he didn't say much. And, uh, but I could see there was a whole lot flooding back mm. for him, I think, going back into B division where he was photographed. Yeah. And there was a lot actually that, um, you know, a lot that Jack talked about and others talked about that didn't end up in the book that, mm. um, that they didn't want to be, they didn't want to talk about publicly. Uh, so, you know, even though these stories are, f are deep and fascinating, uh, it, in some cases it's sort of the tip of the iceberg. Mm. It, it, it's, it's uh, yeah. I didn't realise that women had been in mm. Pentridge. Yes. I always thought of it as being a, a men's prison. Yep. Well, actually it was uh, originally built as a women's prison, a section of, the, of Pentridge A Division, uh, and women were in there continuously up until 1954 when Fairley Prison was built. But then fairly burnt down in 82, there was a fire there and they immediately, they had nowhere else to put the women, so they immediately put them into an annex of B Division, which was the heavies wing. Um, they kicked out the men, put the women in and there was literally just a, a gate separating the men from the women. And it was an appalling period in, in Victoria's penal history. This is when the first four female suicides happened uh, in Victoria's penal history. And because the conditions were so terrible... There was a lot of self-abuse, uh, a lot of slash-ups, as they called them, um, and and four suicides. As I said, they had nothing to do. They were they were just stuck in the middle of this men's prison, and it was a shock going from Fairley to Pentridge. And yeah, now the the one of the women in the book, um, uh, who is an, an anonymous, uh, she agreed to be part of the book, but on the condition of anonymity. Uh, and it's interesting how women, the women that I met six women who I met, one agreed to be part of the book, they really uh, seemed to view their prison experience quite differently. Um, there wasn't... Uh, uh, I think some men uh, who I interviewed wore it as a, a bit of a badge that they'd survive Pentridge, as they could rightfully do that. But it was... I didn't come across that from any of the women. Um, I wouldn't say it was shame, but they didn't want to necessarily be publicly identified but amazingly insightful story 
Uh, and it's interesting that Pat Merlo, f- female prison officer who worked in BNX, also in the book, um, she gives the exact same period, the exact same place from the perspective of a prison officer. And the anonymous female uh, prisoner gives it from the perspective of a prisoner, both equally as horrific, actually. Mm. In terms of the, the building itself, there's something you write in the introduction that I hadn't really thought about. But of course, parts of Pentridge have been retained, the, the large mm. kind of bluestone walls and, and buildings from kind of the, the 19th century and so on. But other newer buildings have been demolished. And, and you suggest that this is kind of, in a way, kind of expunging the, the, the true horror of prison and, and, and keeping that element, the very old kind of antiquated um, element of, of the walls and, and the design and so on around so we can kind of remember that but not be confronted with the reality of, of prisoner life and what it's still like for many people in Australia. Yes, absolutely. I, I really think it's a major failing that um, Pentridge has kind of... The clock's been turned back on Pentridge, as you say, and we're left with something that Ned Kelly would recognise... It's kind of distant in the past. It's unthreatening. It's sort of, um, you know, ye olde prisons. And uh, that's not the truth of Pentridge. Pentridge was occupied until 1997. And uh, the first, the, the, sorry, the final uh, recorded suicide happened in there only a, only a few months before it was decommissioned. Um, you know, the lived experience of this prison for people who are, who are alive today is incredibly powerful. There's so much, and if you go there now, it's really that those those lived years that is, that people who are still with us now can talk about from first-hand experience that have been erased, um, and I think that's an enormous problem. I think Pentridge is multi-layered; it's got many phases to it. Uh, it. It used to be that you could read the entire history of of the development of prisons and how we treated our prisoners from 1850 all the way up until 1997, with all these incremental additions of perspex glass and salmon pink cells and all this strange uh, ideology and thinking that came out of the prison system and so i think it is a great a great tragedy that that's been lost there's no nuance to the to the conservation that's gone on there as far as i can see hmm. it's uh, it's just take it back to the bluestone and that's pentridge yeah and i i mean i suppose to, to sort of have a look at that a bit more closely why uh, i mean this site is massive i mean you have a couple of maps hmm. in the book looking at the extent of the site and it really does you know from murray road and sydney road right down to the the high school there now and behind the the council offices there in moorland and it's a really big site what do you wish might have happened because because having it put to a, a residential use, it's 10k from the city, etc., seems on one hand to be a positive thing, but yeah. but you see that there's something that has really been lost, and I suppose we're we're trying to bury it, yes. bury history. That's right. Um, you know, I think Pentridge should have been developed. I'm certainly not against the development of Pentridge. Um, there were a lot of open areas that should have been developed and have been developed. Even the wings and the divisions um, should have changed. Pentridge shouldn't have remained exactly as it was. When I photographed it, it was in this brief window of sort of decay, and that was never going to last, and it shouldn't last. But, um, you know, the complexity of that history and the layering of that history, I would have liked to have seen many, several more of the more recent buildings um, retained uh, and reused along with the old buildings so that the site could still tell some of its story after 1900. Even some of the cells, I mean, it was like an illuminated church of graffiti in there, and there's a little bit in the book. But, um, you know, you could wander around these cells, and it was so insightful, appalling and graphic, a lot of the graffiti, but so insightful into the mind of mind of the people who were in there. And that's almost all been painted over. You know, I remember D-Division was full of it, and D-Division is now nice and clean and white, all the walls. And so... I think that's a great loss. I would have liked to have seen sections or parts retained that had much more of the original essence of the prison, as well as allowing it to be um, to be changed and developed over time. Why do you think Pentridge was sold to private owners when, when other prisons, historic prisons throughout Australia, have been saved? Mm, that's a very good question. I, I'm not sure. I'm really not sure. Because as you say, yeah, Port Arthur, Fremantle Prison, Boggo Road, even Geelong. Jail. Yeah, Melbourne Jail, exactly. And maybe Melbourne Jail's the answer, I sometimes think. Maybe people just thought, you know, Melbourne can't have two 
prisons. There's not enough to sort of make money out of it. Maybe Melbourne jails, Melbourne's prison, which it wasn't really. Pentridge was Melbourne's prison. Uh, I don't know. It, it wouldn't have been difficult to actually have retained more of the site. There's plenty to develop out there. And I think Heritage Victoria should have done more to actually identify and conserve parts of the prison. And the National Trust, uh, you know, have, have been in opposition to most of what's happened there, as has the Moreland Council. But, you know, at, in that period, um, under Jeff Kennett, schools, um, prisons, mental institutions, you know, those old Victorian era institutions were reaching the end of their life without, you know, having a, having a major new investment. And they were closed and sold off. And I don't know. Mm. And I mean, what happens then, of course, as has as has happened, is developers, of course, want to paint a palatable picture mm. of of something they're trying to sell off to people and make lots of money from. So it kind of makes makes sense. It makes absolute sense. I mean, who would want to live in Pentridge? Honestly, who would want to live there? Well, it's interesting and that afraid I mean, of that idea. It's Pentridge Village. It hasn't changed its name now that it's housing and other things too: cafes, childcare centres. You yep. know, there's there's uh, it really has changed. But I I didn't realise that. Coburg was called Pentridge and mm. then changed its name because it didn't want to be associated with Pentridge. And I think a lot yep. of people think that you would, you know, maybe the housing estate should have a different name, but it has been retained. That's yep. curious. It is. Well, it's, you know, it's this sort of schizophrenic situation uh, where they want to keep, um, they want to exploit the name, but they don't want people to think it's too, it's too rough, it's too bad, it's too nasty. And it's amusing to me. I mean, when people are sitting out there, um, as you may well be able to now. I've just got back into Melbourne yesterday, so I haven't been out there yet. Um, but, you know, sitting in a bar, sipping a cocktail, uh, under those layers of paint right next to them, vomit, piss, um, blood, it's all there. It's still there on those walls, no doubt about it. It's still got that um, those layers. And without being too spooky, you know, I'm sure there's lots of other presences out there. I certainly felt them you know there is a presence the place has a presence but you know the experience of those people out there the memories the people who've died in there you uh, it will not be forgotten despite the efforts of of the developers no and those looming walls are still there absolutely the bluestone walls and even though you do cut through from sydney road through to um bell street now you can go straight through pentridge on the road that's been built there uh you know you're in the yep. former prison yeah yeah, and it's. It, I mean, it could. It should be seen as a strength, I think, rather than a, rather than a, something to be hidden. But yeah, I mean, um, trying to hide the story of of the very distant past is one thing. Trying to bury the lived experience of people who are alive today, as in, you know, with Brian Morley's case, I think a lot of those people were kind of annoyed by that. Can we mm. talk, um, Rip It Man's with us, Pentridge Voices from the Other Side is the book we're speaking about. It's uh, a book of text and photography featuring 15 people that were in um, Pentridge. Uh, I suppose the, the sort of last generation of people that, that were in there as as um, prisoners but also who work there. But your interest in heritage has taken you internationally. Maybe tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing in Myanmar. Sure, yeah. Well, I work with the um, the Yangon Heritage Trust and we're trying to really make sure that uh, Yangon's built and cultural heritage is retained. I mean, that country is going through enormous political, social, economic transition. Um, and Yangon is really one of the last major undeveloped historic cities in Asia from sort of late 19th, early 20th century cities. So the trust works to try and make sure that development is sustainable shall we say that it's not um that it doesn't actually replace what makes the city unique that it's in addition to that uh and that the the an enormous number of layers and different cultural histories that exist in yangon can be part of that city as it modernizes that's that's kind of the vision of the trust in a nutshell so it's a lot of uh, physical conservation that i do working with tradespeople and builders but mostly trying to help the trust lay the the legislature the um uh, the first generation of of, uh, of legislation because there's really no heritage. Is, is there control. A, is there a lot of public concern for that being lost over there in Yangon? Yes, yeah, there is. Actually, the I mean, the majority of the trust's support, financial support, comes from local um, local business people and local concerned people who who donate to the trust. 
it survives through donations it's um, an ngo mm. um but there is yeah there is and there's you know the um the Burmese, I think, really liked the idea that they could uh, get it right where the Thais in Bangkok and, you know, others in Kuala Lumpur and Manila got it wrong and destroyed their historic cities. So I think there's also an appetite that uh, to to actually conserve that heritage and to, to do it right. And I think the great achievement of the Trust has been that there's been no major demolition. So that, you know that setting of a precedent hasn't happened yet. And I suppose just your reflections on how we're going in in Melbourne now. I mean, we've had, you know, um, in the middle of the night kind of thing, historic Mm. buildings have been knocked down because they're more valuable not being there. You know, heritage listing isn't always valued by the owners of those Mm -hmm. buildings, for instance. Uh, How do you think we're going now, reflecting on Pentridge and other buildings that we have in Melbourne? Well, I think, um, you know, I think Melbourne... uh, is a city that's sort of battled with this issue over the years. I mean, Melbourne's probably one of the better Australian cities in terms of the way it's dealt with its heritage over the years. Um, but, you know, I, I see I see Heritage Victoria really hamstrung by legislation that forces it to take into account the, um, you know, the economic use of the site, and that's, that's in the Heritage Act. So Heritage Victoria, which is full of amazing specialists and great people, are really forced to compromise their advice, um, you know, when it comes to developers who argue that it's going to cost too much, basically. And I think then there needs to be a bit of a strengthening um, of the way that um, local authorities and Heritage Victoria deal with heritage because somewhere like Pentridge um, should have been protected more, I think, yeah. Well, thank you for your book and um, congratulations on it. And Rupert Band's doing a series of events in Melbourne while he's in town. So you should look those up, including one at the Wheeler Centre, I understand. And uh, uh, this book, Pentridge Voices from the Other Side, is out through Scribe, that amazing publishing house. Uh, And so you can get your hands on it at all good bookstores. And uh, it's an incredible journey, really, um, in photography and in writing as well. And uh, thanks so much for coming into Triple R. Thank you so much for having me. Fascinating to talk to you. Thank you. Likewise. And if you haven't seen Nozu performing around town in Melbourne before, then I highly recommend you do. There are very soon to play nocturnal Melbourne Museums events uh, after dark on the first Friday of each month, this coming Friday, the 1st of December, as well as a couple of shows supporting ESG or playing with ESG, I should say, at the Nightcat, December 9th to 11. And ahead of those, Nick from the band has been good enough to stop in. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. G'day, Nick. Thanks for coming in. And you've just spied the Pentridge book sitting right yeah. next to me because we were talking about this amazing book earlier in the show. And yeah. you have connections to Pentridge in that you're inside now. You're li- you're, you're living there. Yeah, I'm in one of the cells. And no, <laughs> um, I've got a supernatural connection now. After last night, I did a ghost tour of D Division last night. So this is all very spooky that you it's guys had Ru- Rupert on earlier. It's almost like we planned it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, yeah, I, li- I live in there as well with my partner, Margarita. Yeah, I've been there for a few years. Um, but, yeah, it was really fun last night. Yeah. It was the only way to get in there, and I was like, oh, this is going to be great. I've read a lot about Pentridge. I'm quite quite interested in the history, the morbid, um, you know, macabre history of it. Um and I was like, well, this is the only way to get into D Division these days because I don't think they run regular tours. I'm like, historical knowledge is going to be great. And then they started talking about the ghosts and I kind of got really excited about wow. that, showing some grainy photos of uh, chopper reed-shaped um, blobs, you know, and things like that. How was the walk, how was the walk home? After. Oh, actually, yeah, fr- we freaked ourselves out a little bit. We took a kind of a bit of a detour and kind of looked through some bars in some other areas that you're not really allowed into. And I did get a bit of a jump when I heard a noise, actually. It's amazing. Yeah. The power of suggestion, isn't it? I remember it is, being yeah. in, um, in Edinburgh probably about 10 years ago, but did one of the ghost tours in the, the vaults underground, the old city. And, um, you know, there's kind of lights come on and off and I'm, sure it was planned but they say it wasn't <laughs> but um but if you make it through to the end they g- gave you a free shot of whiskey so they try and freak you out and then there's this whole thing of like but if you get there then you can have shortbread and whiskey so how kind of you know brave are you yeah, um, yeah. but it was amazing i was there with like, i think two other guys and 
all of, you, you can't help but get kind of in the zone of being scared in those places just because they're innately spooky. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could go into uh, like all the cells and you know just wander around at one point, and there was no way I was going to let anyone close one of those doors on mm. me. I was like, <laughs> man, this is heebie-jeebies. Yeah. yeah. And I, I mean, I'm interested just because we were talking about it earlier. Yeah. Uh, what the community's like in there. Um, it's, as I just said to you guys off air, it's a bit of a slice of uh, suburbia in there. It's very quiet. Don't really interact with people too much. There's some nice gardens. It's nice. Near the Mary Creek there. Yeah. 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 Good New little chapter. spot. <laughs> Macabre place to live, definitely. But yeah, and it actually, if I can segue it slightly, <laughs> it, it actually kind of has fed into Noza, even the Afterlife album. There's mm-hmm. a lot of, um, kind of metaphors and imagery, even in the lyrics about, um, you know, jail-like uh, tools and torture devices and dungeon-like themes that have, you know, some some bigger meanings attached to, you know, Australia's dark history and things like that, but put in a kind of dance floor metaphor, I guess. It, it's interesting after life because yeah. it does deal with kind of dark themes, but it's such such an uplifting album. You can't help but kind of move around to it. Was that an intention when, when you were writing that album to kind of, um, you know, have those contrasts? Yeah, I mean, I never, never, and the, and the guys are the same. Anyone that's kind of gravitated towards knows we've never wanted to make vacuous party music, you know, as, as much as we get booked to play like late night, um, you know, festival closings and stuff like that. Um, it's, for me, it's like you're always a part of your culture and, you know, it's, it's not political, but I guess sometimes the personal is political and it's about acknowledging, you know, things that are, um, you know, the great, you know, what do they call it? The great silence, you know, in Australia or, or whatever. It's a, a, it's just a bit about acknowledging that and just being matter of fact about it. Mm. Um, and not necessarily always translating to the listener. Like you could dig, dig deeper or just ask me. Mm. <laughs> Have you ever played in a prison? No, I'd love to though. Mm. I mean, I do find like it is a bit, a bit odd. Like even Pentridge, you can sleep there. You can, they do some ones where you can sleep overnight. And then I was like, well, I don't know, I don't know how I feel about it, but that's also kind of interesting. It's just interesting. I think always just to acknowledge things that have happened as well, you mm. know, rather than just close them off as you know, just build an apartment, um, build apartments around it and forget about it. So it is a way of you know humans need to acknowledge what has happened in the past mm. yeah yeah absolutely and i mean you've so afterlife did that that came out last year 2016 yes yes early last year i'm happy we can still say last year last year yeah, it feels feel like that, a long yeah. time ago but it kind of doesn't as well because yeah. it's had so much airplay on triple r over that time with remixes and so on but i mean you don't True. sit still for very long you've, you've toured a number of times to, to, to europe since then yeah. what's it like being on the road with such a big band with at least kind of i think there's eight members yeah that you tour with we've never done like an extensive long long time away like uh we went to europe uh in june but it was you know 10 days so it's an intense, you know, period of time where we don't get too strung out and there's not too much, you know, tension in that small van that we're usually in. Um, so yeah, it's, it's fun. It's really fun. Like there is always a lag after it when we come back. It, something's still very exhausting about it because you're just on the whole time. Mm. And if you've ever seen us play, we're, we're the same every time we, we play, like the energy is at a ridiculously high level. Yeah. Yeah, well, what's a heat beat is the, it's the term you used to describe your music. And, and I've read that, you know, you need to sweat when you play your music heat beat. You need to feel yeah. heat. Yeah, yeah. We need, it's it's like a workout or it's like a, an uh, exorcism or something. <laughs> we need, need to just get it, just get it out. I, I'd feel so strange if we came off stage and weren't panting and huh. about to collapse. Yeah. Are you all pretty high energy people then? Um, I, well, I think there's there's quite a mix, and de- definitely not all the time. I think the thing with uh, Nozu is anyone that you know, as I was saying before, that gravitates to it has some part of themselves that they that they can pull out for that performance. So it's kind of a heightened version of yourself, a kind of Nozu heat beat character that comes out. So if you're, I mean, I'm not. I'm definitely not extroverted in real life, but I find myself taking my clothes off a lot on stage and um, <laughs> rolling around on the floor and things like that. And then I just forget about it as soon as I go home and read a book. 
something. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Wind down. Wind down. <laughs> well, um, well, the event you're next appearing at at Melbourne Museum is called Nocturnal, and it kind of ties in with description of, of your band that I've read, um, a nocturnal sex dream bringing together no-wave funk house techno and global percussion. And I wonder, for Nozu, do you kind of most enjoy playing at night when people maybe have, have lost their inhibitions a bit, or have you had some, some gigs at daytime where people have been totally wrapped up in your music as well or is there a difference uh yeah definitely festival environments are often quite different um and it does seem natural i feel like we're kind of a adults only often use like xxx in uh, social media posts and like that something sorted um there, there's there's definitely reaching into the depths of uh the id or you know the un- the underbelly you know even when we're talking about um Australian history before mm. and things like that. Um, so nighttime definitely does seem to bring that out. That said, I was just talking to someone a couple of days ago about a show that we played at Fremantle Festival. Um, another famous prison there. Actually, mm. we stayed there. Um, that it was daylight hours, a family festival. It's quite a family. The, the mayor introduced us. And <laughs> there was a lot of kids around and we were in like full, you know, PVC leather kind of dark sunglasses like we just look like vampires on stage and you know and once you you can only go into fifth gear if you're playing nosy we can't we can never do an acoustic thing we can never make it really family friendly so we just went pretty crazy that was the most jarring <laughs> type of experience there were there were kids like dancing I there was kids some loved it I was gonna yeah say some that. kids did and there were other kids with their arms folded like oh, come on you know we've seen better than this yeah yeah <laughs> So they're harsh critics sometimes. But, yeah, generally after midnight is uh, when it all happens. Good time. (laughs) If you just tuned in, we're chatting with uh, Nick Ogyes, I guess the the leader, mastermind behind Nozoo, and you were formed as kind of your own project back in 2007. So it's been a a long run for Nozoo so far. Yeah, it it has, but I don't see it as, like, a regular band at all. I I see it as just... um, like a, a lifestyle like i know we, we kind of joke about that and say heat beat lifestyle and things but it but it is it's not um an ambitious sense in a careerist set. it just feels like a creative output that um i know i'll be doing my whole life hopefully unless something changes you know um but i don't i don't see it ending I don't, like but in different forms it ends mm. so the band is taking on many it's a kind of a shapeshifter in a sense and new members they come and go and the band just evolves over time so it it's a very different project now than when it started but it's also exactly the same like mm. I, I get exactly the same kind of feeling from the first demo that I made and mm. sent to Triple R as we were saying mm. Simon Winkler was happy enough to ask me for a couple <laughs> more copies yeah yeah, I remember it was one of the, the, the first songs I heard one of your tracks when I started volunteering here maybe five or six years ago. Um, so it's a, you know, it's a big part of a lot of people's connection to, to this city and Melbourne and community radio as well, Nozu. Um, mm. I mean, speaking of kind of mutating over time, where are you at now? Are you writing for a new album? Have you got nothing in the works currently? Yeah, for about a year, we've been playing around with a lot of grooves. All the songs start with grooves. It's all about the body music to start with. Um, and, and just trying to do those things that have never been quite accomplished, like on, on, a, on one track in the past. Or I, I don't know. I, I've often said it. It's like a mirage or, or like, uh, trying to hold on, grab something that's, um, ephemeral. Is that the right word? Yeah. Um, you can never quite grasp it. It's mm. like an oasis, the, the song that Nosey's always trying to make. So it's, it's like this endless, it's like a carrot, like in front of us, like on a stick. Like you can never grab it and always just trying to make that same, trying to make something that moves the body the most and, and strips the inhibitions of ourselves or mm. the, or the listener. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, your records have been really well produced and clearly very well thought out. And, and how do you approach, um, mm. when people have remixed your tracks? Quite, quite a few people have. And I think recently there was a certain ratio do the doozoo mix. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you kind of readily kind of hand that over or just to people you trust to remix your tracks and present it in a bit of a, a different light? Um, we've never, never really gone out and tried to seek um, anyone. It's just been opportunistic kind of times. Like there hasn't really been that many remixes and the, and these guys came up, 
Um, I was just talking to someone the other day for another interview. Um, this really lovely guy, Luke Warren, that I'd never met from Manchester, involved in the Manchester scene, knew a certain ratio, and Jason Boardman from Aficionado Records as well. They kind of just teed up. They were like, oh, I reckon, you know, you guys are a bit like a certain ratio. They might like you. And, like, they just, like, hooked that up. Just and I was happened. like, that's just amazing. <laughs> and they went into a studio and, like, re-recorded a track. It's mm. kind of, yeah, I still can't really come to terms with it. So that was just, like, that was terrible timing if you were, like, uh, back in the day, an executive at a music record company. And luckily, Chapter were happy to release <laughs> it. Um you know, to say like months after the albums come out, oh, let's put this track that's not really that accessible <laughs> with a remix <laughs> from some some groups that really like you know maybe to people like us know a certain ratio and things, but it's still they're a real cult band. Mm. A lot of those bands that we really love, even like ESG mm. and James Chance or or whoever, any of those No Wave and post punk bands, are still quite cult. Mm. So it's it's all just been for the for the love of it and and just people that share the similar ethos really to get back to the question mm. that's all it's been so definitely don't um we don't ask them to change anything or no, to but they're, do. they're just the right people they happen to be the yeah. right people gravitate towards you exactly and that's the same with how people get involved with Nozu as well it's just the a similar energy mm. yeah well, well what can people expect so you've got the the show coming up at melbourne museum this friday then uh the nightcap with esg december 9 to 11 so three shows is that going to be kind of a full 11 piece outfit or how many are going to be involved in in those ones yeah we've we've got a, a pretty similar lineup for all the shows coming up just changing a, a singer here and there um but yeah i think a 10 10 to 11 for each show um yeah it's going to be a yeah, we're not not really um, holding back. <laughs> we're not pulling our punches, even though we're kind of supporting ESG. We'll mm. try not to go too crazy <laughs> before they play. Um, but yeah, it's going to be the full um, extravaganza. Fantastic! And yeah. so, when can we expect new new music? Do you have a timeline in place yet? Or? This is what I think about every day, and I wake up sweating in the night thinking about it the as well. Beat. The heat beat, yeah, yeah, the cold sweat heat beat. That's going to be a new catchphrase we can use. <laughs> Just a ghost. Yeah, the ghosts, <laughs> the Pentridge ghosts. Um, yeah, um, um, well, we've got some recording time booked in to say it dryly in January and hopefully not long after. I'm just gagging to get something out, to be honest. Mm. Yeah. Oh, we're gagging for you to get something new out too. Yeah, I can't wait. And, and there's so many ideas floating around. But as you were saying before, the, the one major thing has to be like a, a, a conceptual, conceptual thing that does end up tying it all together and we feel really strongly about before it comes out mm. yeah yeah can't wait to hear it cool yeah can't wait to do it <laughs> so um no so their music uh, including their, their last album afterlife out uh, early last year is available through chapter music um you can check out the website to find out how to get yourself a copy um they're also playing nocturnal as part of melbourne museum this friday december 1st with mild life and opalakia and uh you can get tickets via the melbourne museum website and you can also catch no zoo playing the night cat with esg which is sure to be a great time three shows from December 9 to 11 we've been chatting with Nick from the band thanks so much for coming in thanks, thanks so much Nick. thank you this has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne truly independent community radio want to hear more check out our website at rrr.org.au